Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. What recession? The White House dismisses fears of a slowdown despite the warning last week in the bond markets. Which way on Huawei? Trump's team say the deadline has been extended. The president says he'll decide today. And aggressive accounting or fraud? Famed short seller Andrew Left wades in on the GE whistleblower report. It's Monday. Let's make a move. once again to first move where there's certainly no sign of Monday blues this morning for the global markets. Take a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures at this moment. We are significantly higher pre-market following the gains that we saw in both Asia and Europe. Net-net, just for perspective, the Dow down around 2.5% this month. But certainly fears of a looming global recession have turned over the weekend almost as quickly as the weather in New York this weekend to hopes for a shower of renewed stimulus support. Two key developments I want to bring to your attention. First, over in China, the central bank introducing fresh interest rate reforms that are widely seen as a move to help lower corporate borrowing costs. Stimulus, the watchword there. Then there's Germany. Yes, you heard me right. Just a week after the headlines bemoaned the end of the golden decade of economic growth in Germany, the nation's finance minister says they are ready to unleash the full force of government funding. Even the Bundesbank this morning confirming the recession risks. Let's not, though, forget the United States here, too. We had a chorus of voices this weekend declaring recession fears are exaggerated. Larry Kudlow, the White House economic advisor, even suggesting more tax Tax cuts here are still an option. Just don't look at the deficit. All this comes ahead of this week's central bank set piece, the so-called Jackson Hole meeting in Wyoming. Fed Chair Jay Powell is set to speak on Friday after the market close. Will he confirm market pricing of more than two additional rate cuts this year? And will he acknowledge that the trade risks here have gone from a simmer that's what he called it, to boiling point and perhaps even back down again. Let's get to the drivers. The Trump administration playing down fears of a recession despite last week's steep drop in financial markets. Over the weekend, the president and other top White House officials dismissing those economic growth concerns and insisting the trade war with China is not damaging the U.S. economy. I don't think we're having a recession. We're doing tremendously well. Our consumers are rich. I gave a tremendous tax cut, and they're loaded up with money. Well, I'll tell you what, I sure don't see a recession. Consumers are working at higher wages. They are spending at a rapid pace. They're actually saving also while they're spending. That's an ideal situation. Let's not be afraid of optimism. Technically, we did not have a yield curve inversion. In this case, the flat curve is actually the result of a very strong 
Trump economy. What we see now is foreign capital coming to the best game on the globe, which is the Trump economy. It's going into our stock market. But when it goes into the bond market on the long end, it bids up bond prices and bids down yields and you get the flat curve. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, as you can see, the White House out in full force over the weekend, playing down those broader concerns about economic weakness here in the United States. Even a dinner between President Trump and the CEO of Apple as well, where they talked about the potential impact of tariffs. The mission here is to play down the trade war risks. Julia, I think we should take this full-throated economic optimism from the Trump administration with a little bit of a grain of, a, of, of salt here. Because while they are painting a very rosy picture, there are legitimate reasons to be concerned here. Uh, the U.S. economy is starting to look a little bit shaky. Uh, the global economy looks much worse. And if you actually look at the, the numbers, um, the economic numbers that have been released, I, I think it paints a mixed picture because unemployment is really low, near a 49-year low, and that has allowed consumer spending to continue. I mean, the July retail sales figures were impressive. However, uh, consumer sentiment took a hit in early August, falling to a seven-month low. So that raises questions about how long consumer spending will continue. Business spending has been a little bit more muted, and that is because of, in large part, because of the trade war. Manufacturing has been weak, and that also is because of the trade war. Now, the bond market, uh, despite what Peter Navarro said, um, I think that the, the bond market is really flashing red lights. I mean, we see the 30-year Treasury rate at near an all-time low, the inversion between the two-year and the 10-year, which has been um, an ominous signal in the past, and those are reasons to be concerned. Um, another point, though, you know, about uh, Larry Kudlow, he said that he sees no recession coming. Uh, we should remind everyone that in December of 2007, he wrote, no recession coming, the Bush boom is alive and well. And as we now know, that was the same month that the Great Recession began. So none of this is to say a recession is definitely in the cards, but the risks are clearly rising. Uh, the economy is vulnerable to shocks and few people in Washington normally see a recession coming um, before it's actually arrived. Yeah, and that is a good point. Although I did like Larry Kudlow's line about we are seeing spending and saving from U.S. consumers. And we'll talk about that later on in the show. But you do get a sense here that they recognize economic weakness is not the way to head into the 2020 elections here. Far shorter term, though, Jay Powell. The market pricing more than two rate cuts by the end of this year. How does he play this? Or does he try to avoid being pretty contentious, either confirming or not confirming what the market it wants right now in, in terms of more stimulus here, Matt. Julia, I, I do not envy the job ahead for Jay Powell because he needs to thread this needle, right? He has to show investors that he's taking these risks seriously, but he also wants to reassure them and not actually uh, confirm uh, and, and reignite these fears of a recession. And so he's got to show that the Fed is willing to come to the rescue if it's needed, um, but he also doesn't want to, to get ahead of the case either. So I, I think it's a very difficult task. Uh, he's speaking at Jackson Hole on Friday and everyone will be tuned in. It has the potential to really move the market. And um, I think it'll be, you know, it's, it's really clear that Jay Powell uh, has the toughest job in Washington because no matter what he does, he's not really going to satisfy everyone and certainly not President Trump. Trump, uh, who you know wants really massive interest rate cuts, um, and, and, and so you know it, it's it's a very difficult task for Jay Powell.
Yes, tough to give everybody what they need and not necessarily what they want. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on now. Another reprieve for Huawei, perhaps another reprieve for U.S. companies doing business with them because we do believe U.S. firms will get another 90 days to trade with the Chinese tech giant. Claire Sebastian joins me. A bit of confusion over this, Claire. Secretary Ross saying this morning, in fact, on an alternative network that there will be an extension, but the president says yesterday that he will decide today. Where are we? Yeah, so there will be an extension, Julia. The Commerce Department has now confirmed that, but they are not painting this uh, as a reprieve on Huawei. They're doing their very best effort not to, to, to appear like they're contradicting the president. The lead uh, line from the Commerce Department is that they're adding another 46 Huawei subsidiaries to the entity list. This is the restriction on uh, uh, doing business with U.S. companies that came in uh, in May. And, and the second line in that is that there will be a 90-day extension to the current 90-day reprieve uh, that allows you know limited business with Huawei to Despite this ban, that is designed, according to the Commerce Secretary, to, to give a little, a little more space to rural telecoms carriers who rely on Huawei equipment. In his words, so that they have a bit more time to wean themselves off Huawei equipment. So they now have uh, another three months. But I think, taken in the context of the broader trade discussions, we saw the the, the delay uh, on some of those tariffs, the the, the another the 300 billion in Chinese goods that the Trump administration is now promising to tariffs. That it looks like they're trying to to insulate uh, U.S. businesses and U.S. consumers. Well. At the same time, possibly uh, giving China a better chance of coming to the table in the mood to compromise if those talks do resume in September, Julia. Absolutely. And, and to your point as well, a reprieve for Huawei looks more like a reprieve for those U.S. businesses that are saying, look, we still need to trade with these guys and it limits our businesses too. There was an interesting poll at the weekend, and I want to um, throw this in here. NBC Wall Street Journal saying that a record 64% of Americans that responded said free trade is a positive thing for the U.S. economy. That was 15% in 2017. Interesting to see perhaps a strengthening of sentiment that ultimately we do need trade to be a strong economy here in the United States. Where does that leave ongoing trade talks, Claire? Where are we? Yeah, so you know, I think this is a measure if you don't know the value of something until it looks like you're going to lose it. Uh, obviously, back in 2017, uh, which you're comparing this poll to, things were, were chugging along nicely. This, this trade dispute really didn't get underway until the beginning of 2018 with those tariffs on solar panels and washing machines, which feel like a very long way away now. Now we're in a situation where we could see pretty much everything that the U.S. imports from China hit uh, with extra tariffs. They forget extra being the operative word. Some of them are already facing uh, high tariffs and, and always were. So this is a situation that, that has put a cloud of uncertainty, not only over U.S. businesses, but over U.S. consumers. And it's now roiled the markets and, and threatens to, to possibly hasten the decline of this economy into a recession. So I think this is really this poll will, will constantly concentrate at the mind of, of, of the Trump administration and his campaign staff. Yeah, I should say 27% of those that responded did say it wasn't a good idea. Free trade wasn't a good idea. But yeah, focused minds, very true. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. The UK opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn calling for fresh elections to stop the Brexit crisis. He's promised a second referendum if he wins. This follows a leaked report warning of no deal dangers. Nina Dos Santos joins us on this story. So he's saying, look, we should call fresh elections. We should have an another referendum but where does Labour stand if we have that second referendum Nina? Well, he made a speech earlier on today in Northampton, uh, Julia, and during which he said 
Labour believes the decision on how to resolve the Brexit crisis is eventually to put the options on the table back to the British people, so essentially have a second referendum, but again, it shouldn't necessarily be a second referendum just like the one in 2016 with the same questions on the, on the plate there. They should have a range of options to make sure that it's not a rerun of 2016 and not to give, uh, let's say, political capital to those people who say it would be undemocratic to have the same thing on the sheet. But in the meantime, before even holding that, Jeremy Corbyn's got to try and rally the troops to get forward a no-confidence vote to try and oust the current British Prime Minister. Um, it's really not said and done that he has the support of the Liberal Democrats in particular, who have made it clear that they'd like to see somebody else installed as a caretaker government for a limited time period before snap election is called, as per Jeremy Corbyn's plan. And in the meantime, as you said before, the, this current government of Boris Johnson is one that is pushing ahead with plans for leaving by October the 31st, come what may. Boris Johnson is going to be taking that message uh, to Germany on Wednesday to meet with Angela Merkel, then over to France to meet with Emmanuel Macron, and he's also going to have a chance to speak to other future trading partners inside the EU and crucially outside of the EU who he'd like to have trade deals with at the G7 throughout the course of the weekend. But Corbyn using this political vacuum in the summer to try and up the ante, put the pressure on the government to make sure that Parliament does what it can to try and stop that no-deal Brexit, Julia. Yeah, it just lacks oomph and an alternative option for, for the Brits, I feel, here. And still the clock ticks down. Nina Dos Santos, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that we're following here around the world. Sudan's ousted president faces corruption charges as his trial begins in Khartoum. Amar al-Bashir was forced from power back in April after months of protests. His trial comes as opposition leaders and military generals signed a landmark power-sharing agreement this weekend. Iranian oil tanker seized by the UK is now sailing the open seas of the Mediterranean. Authorities in Gibraltar held the ship for more than a month. It's not clear where it's headed now, though it is believed to be Greece. Iran will only confirm it won't be going to Syria, which would violate EU sanctions. Hundreds of thousands of peaceful protesters took to the streets of Hong Kong on Sunday, a massive show of support for protesters who have been demonstrating now for 11 straight weeks. Organisers claim as many as 1.7 million people joined the rally, while local police put the number at a far more modest 128,000 at the rally's starting point. Ben Weedman joins us now from Hong Kong. Ben, so significant differences in the estimates here of how many protests were out there, but the key part, I think, of this is that they were peaceful. Have the authorities now got a handle on those that were inciting violence over the past few weeks? No, they don't, Julia. But essentially what has happened is that after the closure of Hong Kong Airport on Monday and Tuesday, uh, there was a bit of a backlash against the protest movement. Uh, there was a feeling among many that they had gone a bit too far. Uh, so this was an opportunity for the broader movement of protest in Hong Kong, not just the young radicals, so to speak, but what we saw in the streets was families, older people, uh, children uh, coming out to join this protest. And this is a message to the government uh, that uh, regardless of what might have happened at the airport uh, last week, that this 
movement is continuing. It perhaps is changing its tactics, uh, bringing out, you know, you talk about the numbers. The organizers say 1.7 million. Uh, the police say 128,000, but that was in Victoria Park at its peak. So the number is probably somewhere in between. But the sheer mass of people who took to the streets of Hong Kong on Sunday is a clear indication uh, that as many as a quarter of Hong Kong's population was willing to come out despite the rain and make it clear that they want the government here in Hong Kong to change its position, to finally dispose of this extradition law altogether. But one of their demands is universal suffrage. So it is essentially a demand for greater democratization here. And it's not at all clear if the government is willing to give ground on that very specific demand. Yeah, and to your point, they're not losing energy here, the protesters. They're still out there. Ben Weedman, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, after this, taking sides after last week's explosive Markopoulos report, we speak to a famed short seller coming to GE's defense. And is this the Netflix of hotels? Oyo says the future of lodging is all about data science. We've got the CEO with all the details. Stay with us. to first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where we are looking at a solidly higher open for U.S. majors this morning. This after a barrage of White House commentary this weekend playing down fears of an imminent recession. We're also keeping an eye on the end of the week, of course. Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve Chief, speaking at Jackson Hole. What will he say about the prospect of future rate cuts but also, of course, trade tensions? A little bit different since he last spoke. Bond yields also pushing a little bit higher in the session. Hopes more stimulus from major economies like China, like Germany, as we discussed earlier on in the show. The German finance minister saying the government is ready to unleash the full force of spending. Yes, Germany, you heard it right. And, of course, China bringing in fresh reforms to boost uh, or to cheapen loans for the business sector. Let's get some context here. Troy Gersky is a partner and chief, co-chief investment officer at Skybridge Capital. Having a bit of issues getting my teeth into gear here. Yeah, great to <laughs> see you, Julie. Yeah, yeah. Great show. to be here. All right. What do you make of what we're seeing right now? Because we did see a whole host of names from the White House out over the weekend saying, look, don't panic about imminent recession here in the United States. Uh, yeah, we have to qualify. Some of that is cheerleading. But the facts as we see them right now is yeah. there's roughly a one in three probability that the trade war escalates further, stays the same, that leads to recession. There's also the base case that the consumer is still so strong that even with ongoing trade conflict, we can avoid recession. But last but not least, there's the one in three probability that a face-saving trade deal is done between Xi and Trump. And all the forestalled CapEx of the slowdown material here recently comes roaring back. And we end up with another leg to this growth period. We'll explore that in a, yeah. in a second or two. Just one in three chance of a recession over what time period? Because that feels quite high. Well, yeah, so it's certainly the highest it's been since the Eurozone crisis, right. in our opinion. We got up to about one in four during the 15-16 fears of China devaluation and hard landing in that period. And again, the main driver is that 
that the, the trade conflict has caused uh, fixed investment in the U.S., both CapEx and other business fixed investment, to basically go from 8% growth rates to basically flatlining. Right. And that could potentially spill over into the labor market at some point. We don't see that yet. So in terms of timing, it would be at least nine months, if not further, because unless the labor market starts to deteriorate like tomorrow, and that's how fast it would have to be, we're, we're not going to have a consumer that's weak enough to allow that to happen. Yeah, because there's, there's a lag there's of a when lot, you start to right. see that feedback. Okay, interesting comment, and it's something that you've touched on, and I've seen you say it, was what Larry Kudlow said at the weekend. He said, look, the consumer is both spending right now and saving in the United States. Such an important point. Talk me through this. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Due to the combination of, a, of what is now a red-hot labor market, we were white-hot, now we're red-hot. We've had meaningful wage gains, you know, low 3%, which isn't fantastic, but the best we've had in the crisis. Total comp gains around 5%. What you've seen is the consumer's able to spend around a 3% plus or minus rate, so not booming spending, but healthy. At the same time, they continue to delever, which means they're reducing their outstanding debt as a function of income and GDP. At the same time, they're saving more. So this is a very powerful cocktail in, in order to enable the consumer to continue to support the economy going forward. And this is two-thirds of the economy, let's That's right. be clear, the services sector. So yeah. as long as we continue to see this kind of behavior, it's pretty solid for the economic outlook. You need here. to see massive deterioration in CapEx and inventory liquidation unless the labor market deteriorates. So our eyes are very much focused on initial claims. Initial claims have been hovering between 200 and 215,000. They have to go up to 250 to 300 before you even start to think about a meaningful deterioration in the labor market, and obviously we'll focus on non-farm payroll. For the time being, the consumer is in excellent shape. Oh, it's interesting. So those are the things that we have to watch. Yes. All right. Go back to what you were saying about mm -hmm. this idea that perhaps there's a one in three possibility that, that we do see some kind of trade deal, and suddenly all that pent-up demand kicks into the economy and actually provides a further lift. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's one of the things that markets are grappling with, right? You have the bear case, the base case, and the bull case. The bull case is that, look, since Q3 of last year due to the trade conflict booming capex has turned into flatlining capex yes and so every every you know small medium and large businesses are all looking at saying we need clarity we need clarity if that clarity is reached even if it's just a face saving deal at some point late this year or early next what you'll see is capex pick back up business fixed investments start to boom again which means we have another big leg of growth left in this uh, recovery i mean this is the problem that investors are grappling yeah, with right now because yeah. they know that this white House is very sensitive to stock markets, to the political pressures of a 2020 election, and perhaps the risk of economic deterioration if they don't make a deal. What does this mean for investors? What do you do here? Well, yeah, so in our opinion, what you want to do is not take an excessive level risk, because yeah. again, recession risk is high, and equities are still relatively expensive, about 16 and a half times forward earnings. We're mainly focused on consumer credit and the credit of regional community banks, because our belief there is that even if we had a mild recession, realized losses would be relatively mild, and you could outperform most of their investments. Yes. The downside, though, with that strategy is if we do get that one-third bullish outcome, where you know uh, Trump calls off the trade war, Xi calls off the trade war, business investment booms, and equities are up 20, we'd certainly underperform equities in that environment. We're, but we're more than happy to underperform if things go extremely well for our investors. Yeah, and that's the key, isn't it? That's You're right. Kind of
managed appropriately, basically. That's correct, yeah. Troy, fantastic to have you Great on. Great to see you, Julia. Thank Great you so to be much here. for coming. Troy Gesky there, the partner and co-chief investment officer at Skybridge Capital. All right, we are counting down to the market open this morning. A stronger open anticipated for U.S. stocks. We're also going to be talking about the recovery in GE stock price, too, as Andrew left. Famed short seller jumps to GE's defense in light of the volatility. That's after this. We're counting down to the market open this morning. It's Monday and you're watching First Move. Stay with us. higher open optimism carryover from the Asia session from the European session Germany talking about providing more stimulus noises from China as well about making borrowing costs lower for corporates a real sense here that perhaps as the global economic outlook dims central banks governments are ready to step up and try and support their economies with hopes of uh, renewed stimulus support of course and we've got Jackson Hole coming up as well what will Fed Chief Jay Powell say about the outlook here to watch this space let me take you through the global movers today to nvidia in focus uh, they announced a partnership with microsoft to provide more realistic graphics for popular world building games minecraft the companies did not disclose any financial details of the tie-up Estee Lauder also in focus, their quarterly earnings beating estimates. They boosted uh, their sales jump in its skincare business by some 15%. They expect four-year sales to grow between 7 and 8%. They also said the forecast takes into account issues such as the Hong Kong protests, Brexit and the US-China trade war. So being conservative there on the uh, risks or the upcoming risks. GE, we're also keeping our eyes on this one too. General Electric shares continue to recover following last week's fraud accusations. The trouble began last Thursday after the forensic accountant Harry Markopoulos accused the company of hiding nearly $40 billion worth of losses. General Electric fired back saying his accusations were, quote, meritless. Now, famed short seller Andrew Left has entered the fray. He's the founder of Citroen Research and is backing GE, saying that aggressive accounting is not fraud. Andrew Left joins us now from Los Angeles. Andrew, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Just describe to me why you felt it was important to wade in here and say, look, this is the wrong way to handle this. First of all, fraud means intent. Uh, if you look at any of the frauds that have come out from Enron to Madoff, whatever it may be, it was a small group of people who were able to go ahead and change it and have that intent. If GE were to be committing fraud versus aggressive accounting, that would mean over 20 years, thousands of people have all been in on it, not wanted to be a whistleblower. It's just completely, it's wrong, it's intellectually dishonest. So, and uh, could they have aggressive accounting? Sure, but so does half the stock market. So I just think Mark Coppolis used this as an opportunist. He was paid by an unnamed hedge fund. He wouldn't disclose it. He used his reputation off Madoff to try to create hysteria in General Electric. And I think it was disingenuous. Okay, we're going to go into all the details of that as well, because the secrecy is strange. But I did ask 
Um, I did ask him for a comment on the idea of the difference between aggressive accounting and fraud here. And his statement says, how quickly we forget the 2007-2009 global financial crisis, where a conspiracy on a grand scale by accountants, auditors, rating agencies, real estate agents, appraisers, and Wall Street banks brought the world economy to its knees. GE's accountants, auditors, and CFO all somehow never noticed GE's WMC subprime mortgage unit was committing fraud, a fraud for which GE paid a one and a half billion dollar fine to the Justice Department on April 12, 2019. I guess his point is that they have previous here. I mean, the point sounds like hyperbole to me. It actually shows that they did pay a fine, so it was noticed by the SEC and it's been rectified. Saying that the company has been having a cover-up for 20 years that alone, I mean, think of the amount of people, the amount of operating divisions and countries that have to have been in on it. It's not plausible. He's talking, he wants to compare it versus uh, a black swan outlier that we saw in 2008. Again, it's just not intellectually honest. Talk to me about the decision for him to provide research to a fund that then decided to, to show that he gets a benefit. Because you've, you're upset about this too, yeah, the secrecy I've been around this. Short I've been an activist short seller for 18 or 19 years, one of, one of the longest activist short sellers. I have never been paid ever by a fund to write a story. And more importantly, it would never pass my compliance. I don't think it would pass the compliance of any fund as well. So whoever paid him, uh, they should just come out and say it or he should say it. And I guarantee it's not a fund. Uh, it's not a fund that you've heard of or a brand name fund. I think Markopoulos uses this as an opportunity to make himself a little bit of money. I think he covered probably already. I would highly doubt if he's still short the stock. And I just wish the story would blow over and let GE operate. If the stock goes lower, let it go lower. If it goes higher, let it go higher on its own merits. But this is a complete non-event that received way too much attention than it deserved. Okay, I spoke to Harry last week. I just want to play you because I said to him, and talk to him about the interaction with the hedge fund and, and why the secrecy. Listen to what he had to say about this. I can't do that. They wanted confidentiality. It's a U.S.-based East Coast hedge fund, a very reputable company, not no, normally known for uh, shorting, actually. Uh, they're paying a percentage of the net trading profits for early access to my report, and I have two other means of payments. One is the SEC whistleblower program, and the other is the Department of Justice Perea whistleblower program. Where did they go short? Can you tell me that? What I level did no, they go short? They never told us what they're trading. I'm assuming it's shares, but I, they, they don't tell me what or when. I'm, I just do the report. I'm a fraud examiner. I I do not trade on Wall Street any longer. I left that business 15 years ago. But you're arguably trading this because you benefit. You're taking a cut of the winnings here. So uh, Indirectly, I have tangential benefit, correct. Andrew, so this is to your point. I mean, he wouldn't say the name. And, and that just sounds wrong. He, he's taking a percentage of the profit, but he doesn't know how much, how much has been shorted. Uh, he has no activity in the trading. He actually said at one time he started to look at GE because they started to operate out of Massachusetts and that's his home state. So if they committed a fraud not in his home state, it would have been okay. But he actually took personal offense to it as if he's the local sheriff. Everything about it doesn't pass the smell test for activist short selling. Uh, I don't believe this is work that he has done that he just decided. I believe a hedge fund did some work, didn't like the accounting, said, how are we going to get some publicity on it? 
They gave it to Harry. He put it out. They gave a percentage of the profits. And it's as simple as that. I believe most of it's already been covered. And, uh, and the name will probably come out because there will probably be a shareholder lawsuit around this against GE. And, and in a backward way, in a shareholder lawsuit against GE, the first thing that will get subpoenaed is Harry and who's behind him. Are people talking about who they think it is? Or at this stage, are we all just guessing? That's the big mystery on Wall Street. Uh, I think it'll be a big letdown. Like I said, it won't pass compliance of most major funds. It, you can't just start paying someone to writing reports calling General Electric a fraud and tell your lawyers, hey, can we do this? And they say yes. Uh, so I think, I think we'll be disappointed when we find out who it is. Uh, but more importantly, it's a non-story. Let GE go back to their business. If you want to buy the stock, buy it. If you want to short it based on the aggressive accounting, it's fine. But this is a sideshow to their larger business. You know, it's interesting. In Harry's defense, I could argue that yeah, he tried to blow the whistle on on uh, Madoff and no one listened. So this is, I guess, one way of drawing attention to I the mean, situation. I mean, nobody was looking at Madoff. No one cared yeah. about Madoff. You couldn't short Madoff. You couldn't make money on Madoff. So no one really had their eyes on him. If you would have showed me someone returning those consistent returns, I could have told you. Anyone could have told you. But no one cared. This is General Electric. Let's not confuse the two. They, they shouldn't okay. be put in the same okay. sense. But a lot of investors lost a lot of money, so it's a shame people didn't pay more attention. But I want to bring it back to, uh, to GE here. You bought stock last week on the dip, did you? Are you still long? Yeah, I'm still long. I'm, I'm long half. I sold that. It was a trade. I mean, the, the stock was down, I think, like 8 9% uh, yeah. because of this report. I saw him start speaking, and I said, oh, God, there's no there there. So uh, I just bought, no doubt. Where should take profit? Probably. I, I haven't seen since the market's open. I've been talking to you. But in this area, I sold half of it. Okay, watch this space. Andrew, fantastic to have you on, as always. We'll get you back soon, no doubt. Andrew left at Citroen Research there with a robust defense of GE this morning. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But up next, the unicorn calling itself the Netflix of the hospitality industry. I speak to the CEO of Oyo. Stay with us. That's after this. Welcome back to First Move and straight into the chat room with a six-year-old startup that says it's using data to revolutionize the hotel industry. Oyo was founded in 2013 by Ritesh Agrawal. He's backed by investors including Sakura Capital and SoftBank. The Indian unicorn is now the country's largest hospitality chain with more than 13,000 hotels across six different countries all operated under the Oyo brand. I asked the CEO why the hotel industry was so ripe for disruption. I'll break this down into two different parts. The first bit is talking about what is the problem statement. Now all of us would imagine that we have a bunch of budget hotel options, but we would also acknowledge that majority of the economy hotels in this country or otherwise are rated very lowly, the rooms are very dim, and the quality of experience is pretty substandard for the price point that we end up paying. And I felt that was unfair. I felt, why should we get an experience like that, regardless of the price point that a consumer pays, whether it is $50 or $300 a night? And that belief of saying that 
why should majority of hotels be less than three star in rating and why can't we deliver a four star or five star experience to customers really got us started in the early days in terms of belief. Today we manage OYO hotels and homes across 80 countries across the world, all across Europe, uh, North America, Asia Pacific uh, and a few other locations. The belief honestly on the other hand also came from the entrepreneurial spirit. I was 19 uh, and right out of high school when Peter Thiel who started PayPal and was an early investor in Facebook, he gave me $100,000 as a part of the Thiel Fellowship to drop out of university and start uh, and, and do the project that I was very excited about. And I think from that time on, I genuinely had this belief that changing something that had a substantial opportunity of, like that of great quality living spaces, is a fantastic opportunity. And by means of creating the secret sauces that we've created, we've been able to create a positive impact. But as you know, I think this one million rooms, in our view, is just a starting point, And we're very excited about the long-term opportunity this company holds for us. Tesh calls it his secret sauce. I call it data. That's what he argues is simply what distinguishes OYO from the competition. I asked how the company uses it to get edge here. So we have hundreds of data scientists with hundreds of millions of data points who are constantly looking at each street and neighborhood across the world in 800 cities that we operate in and constantly right. predict that in this street, what is the potential revenue now? What is the economic up cycle and down cycle? During both of those in the last 40 years, what were the revenues like? What were the operating costs like? And what were the potential NOIs? And then predict for what quality of interior design, very similar to Netflix originals, they see that Adam Sandler movies sell. So they just hire Adam Sandler for most of the movies. Sorry, I'm just saying that in zest. But in similar perspective, <laughs> we know what interior design gives us the best revenues because of the data sciences and we just keep replicating that interior design versus old school uh, real estate companies who potentially just predict by human intervention that what interior design might or might not work without any data points. So our ability to use data and use AI to constantly predict what design works is very special. OYO's unique approach to the hospitality industry has won it customers and attracted the attention of some pretty high-profile backers. SoftBank and Sequoia Capital are among the better-known investors. I asked him how he attracts that capital. And obviously, key question for a unicorn right now, are they profitable? We, of course, pride ourselves in the 50 million customers we serve and make sure that every night there are over half a million customers right from Texas to Tokyo who use our services and, are, and appreciate it. But at the same time, I think uh, we are thankful for the support we've received from shareholders. We've raised uh, till date um, uh, a, a couple of billion dollars in venture financing. And I think the reason why uh, we've been able to raise this is because consumers really appreciate the product quality and price point that we are able to give them. More often than not, for most of these capital providers for us, uh, they have reached out to us to invest capital rather than we've reached out to them in most situations. Because when people saw that in every street in China, in India, in Europe, uh, and increasingly in the United States, OYO hotels were showing up and they were running with such high occupancies, they felt this looks interesting. Let us reach out to the entrepreneurs and find out what this company does. And uh, over time, we got to know each other better and uh, got the opportunity to partner. So I have to hazard a guess as to what they saw in us. And my view is what they really saw in us 
is fundamentally there are few companies that are transforming industries like entertainment were trans was transformed by Netflix. Uh, companies such as Amazon transformed e-commerce. Probably they saw that Oyo was fundamentally transforming better quality of life. That is, you don't have to live in a Tribeca or a Soho to have a beautiful living space. You could be anywhere and still deserve a great quality living space. And that's what we're trying to solve here at Oyo. Are you profitable? Is the company profitable yet? So we make uh, profit in our buildings worldwide. So on an average, every building across the world sends us profit at our headquarters. But understandably, because we are investing in our software engineering as well as our data sciences capabilities in the central office, we are loss making as a group. But at the same time, at a building level, we definitely make very attractive profits. This was an idea that he came up with as a 19-year-old and we're only, what, six years on. Quite fascinating and most definitely a company to watch. The CEO of Oyo there. All right, more money, more problems. Sotheby's pulls the plug as a vintage car auction descends into abject confusion. All the details next. You're with First Move. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief. China's leading search engine Baidu is revving up to reveal Q2 earnings after the close today. The company's stock has seen half its value lost over the past year and Wall Street is predicting a plunge in second quarter earnings. We'll watch for that. When a 1930s Porsche hit the auction block on Saturday, excitement was running high until the Sotheby's auctioneer had to quickly hit the brakes. The audience got all worked up when they thought the bidding had reached $70 million. Only for the balloon to burst when the auctioneer realized everyone was mishearing him. He stopped the bidding and clarified it was at $17 million. Just a minor difference there, not? Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, what a disaster this was. Talk us through it because it's one of your worst nightmares, quite frankly, to be misheard like this. And whopping numbers. Right, misheard, and then the, the numbers, the, the, the 30 million, 40 million, all flashed up on the screen. You know, uh, this is still for sale, this car, Julia, on the Sotheby's auction site, despite the fact that they then had to call off the auction and it didn't end up uh, being bought. They described it as the most historically important Porsche ever publicly offered. I think now it will go down in history uh, for some of the wrong reasons. But take a look uh, at how this unfolded and how the audience reacted there. write seven zero. It might be my pronunciation. We're at 17 million dollars. We're going to 17. 17 million. Yeah, it would have been quite exciting, Julia, if it was 70 million. That would have made it the uh, the most expensive car ever sold anywhere. But as it stands, uh, Sotheby's put out a statement. They said this was in no way a joke or stunt on behalf of anyone at Sotheby's. Rather, an unfortunate misunderstanding amplified by excitement in the room. As I said, the car did not end up selling. 
I know. I mean, I've listened to it a couple of times now, and I'm having trouble distinguishing between the teen and the tea. It's one of my worst nightmares, actually, from being on a trading floor is making that kind of error. I know people were uh, thinking about the Banksy example as well, where the, the, the picture shredded after the auction. But a lot of people here saying this was no joke. It was incredibly embarrassing here for the auction house. Incredibly embarrassing, Julia, and I think that's why they had to put out a statement explicitly saying this was in no way uh, a joke or a stunt. But, you know, this was a very historical car. There was a lot of hype around it. It's the Type 64, not officially uh, a Porsche. It was actually built about a decade before Porsche uh, officially set up shop. It was designed uh, to, to take part in a road race from Berlin to Rome in September of 1939, which was, of course, the, the, the same month that World War II uh, broke out. So it never ended up taking part in that race. This is actually officially the third Type 64 ever built, but it was built on the frame uh, of the first one after that car was crashed. So a lot of history there, a lot of uh, links to Nazi Germany, which makes it somewhat controversial. So uh, again, a lot of hype surrounding this auction and it didn't end up selling. Yeah, I have to say, not a best time to be holding an auction after the volatility that we saw in the markets last week. A lot of people will have had lighter pockets as a result and then you go into a weekend like this with a high-priced auction and then it goes wrong. You're bound to see people a little bit more cautious after the kind of week that we'd had in the markets too. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this was another another factor playing in there. Maybe that's why you saw all the attendees on their feet, the phones out when you started to see the price going as high as 70 million, wondering where those bids uh, were coming from. They said that the car was supposed to fetch uh, around 20 million. They did end up selling uh, other cars as part of this this special week that Sotheby's are holding in Monterey, California, but but not this one, sadly, Julia. And I think you're right. You know, I think this is a very volatile time for the economy, recession worries, trade worries, and I think perhaps uh, that will lead to some caution when it comes to these luxury items. Yeah. yeah, I think gross totals were down some 25% by Friday already. Claire Sebastian, great knowledge, keeping you busy once again. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's take a look at what we're seeing for the markets because we have seen a solidly positive start to uh, the market session this morning. As you can see, the Nasdaq outperforming up some uh, one and a quarter percent right now. Can we hold on to this morning's momentum? We shall see. I'm wearing the right dress for it, at least, to urge the markets on here. I'll be back in a couple of hours' time with The Express. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.